Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Today, I have David C. Land on the show to discuss his new monograph, The Other End of the Needle, Continuity and Change Among Tattoo Workers, which was recently released by Rutgers University Press. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Land. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, This is really awesome, and I'm super happy to be here. Excellent. So this uh, project that you that you ventured out on and uh, eventually turned into this book that we're discussing today, The Other End of the Needle, how, how did you get interested in tattoo artists? Well, it's it's a it's a simple story, but it's a lot longer than it might seem. Um, I, from a very young age, was involved in skateboarding and punk rock. And in those kinds of scenes, you tend to see more tattooed people. Um, so I, I was kind of exposed to tattooing at, at a younger age than, than many people. Um, and we're talking in the, the early 90s here. Um, and then I grew up and I aged. And it turns out that some of my friends became tattooers, some of their their siblings became tattooers. So in a sense, I was around a lot of tattooing uh, growing up and and in my early adulthood as well. Um, and of course, what correlates with those stages in, in the life course for me was going to, to um, undergraduate school, getting a degree and um, getting tattooed and hanging out in tattoo shops. Um, eventually, I end up going to graduate school, completing a master's degree and, and doing a PhD. Um, but the whole time, I'm hanging out in tattoo shops and knowing people who are tattooed. So in a sense, um, I had my own sort of personal interest to some degree in in being tattooed. Uh, but then there was also the side of me that, that I had an academic interest in. Uh, I was always kind of gathering articles when I would see them about tattooing or, or tattoos, mostly sociological pieces. Uh, but I had never really treated it seriously as a research area until much later in grad school. Um, And that's when I had some advisors that kind of pushed me and they said, you know, you could really do something neat here. And um, I'm a bit stubborn sometimes, but, but eventually I opened up to the idea and uh, I realized as I was reading pieces on tattooing and sociology, most of them were really focused on the tattoo collector. And I began to think about this, that I had spent a lot of time in tattoo shops. I knew tattooers. I hung around them. And especially spending time in tattoo shops, you realize they they live in this sort of world where they're learning something, but there's not really an official roadmap to being successful at it. And there's a lot of conversations going on where they're trying to figure out how to do their job and how to be better at it. And I think a lot of that... um, really resonated with me as I was reading what was, what existed out there academically, um, that people were more concerned with those collecting tattoos than those trying to figure out how to produce them. And that's really how I got into this. Excellent. So tat- tattooists, um, how, how did that become a, uh, a pastime? Where, where did it where did it gain its roots at? And then how did it end up here in the United States of America as being extremely popular today? Uh, 
the best thing I can tell you about the what is now the United States of America is we've had tattooing for for well over two thousand years in this land area. Um, in fact, some archaeologists just last year discovered some two thousand year old tattoo needles in the Southwest. Um, but if we want to go back historically, uh, we know some of the oldest human remains ever recovered have tattoos on them. Uh, there's Utzi the Iceman, who was discovered in, in the Alps between Italy and Switzerland. Um, his body's nearly 5,000 years old. It had over 60 tattoos on it. Uh, some of them were in joints that were related, and, and those joints showed evidence of uh, damage that would be like arthritis. Um, so some uh, uh, archaeologists, anthropologists, and so forth are, are thinking that they might be related to a, a kind of medicine or a medical treatment for, for his uh, uh, body. Uh, but he's not the only person historically that's had tattoos. We know if we go to ancient Egypt, um, we've, we found mummies with tattoos. In fact, in, in ancient Egypt, it was a practice of the elites and priestesses uh, related to fertility. Um, in ancient Greece and Rome, there was tattooing. Um, if we go to South America, we have tattooing from from um, Peru that we know we've recovered on, on mummies. Um, and if we go across uh, what's Oceana or, or what we'll now call New Zealand, uh, we've got evidence of tattooing dating back thousands of years there as well. Um, and we can't leave out China and Asia. We have tattooing dating back at least a thousand years there, if not 2000 years. So in a sense, um, globally and, and historically, we've had tattooing cross-culturally for thousands of years. Um, when I sort of say this to people, I, I, I like to say that not much has really changed with tattooing. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, at the end of the day, a, a tattoo is still uh, the insertion of pigment into the skin with the intent of leaving some kind of a mark, um, and maybe with a design attached to that mark. But what has changed around it is all the human activities. That is, the technologies used to produce them, the methods of producing tattoos, their meanings, their purposes, anything that humans are doing around that activity of creating those marks. And that's what makes it so interesting to me is that the process itself, um, cross-culturally and historically, is not rigid. And uh, where we end up today, um, tattoos are quite popular. And, and I think that's a whole other narrative about uh, uh Fads and fashions and capitalism. Um, so yeah, uh, did you want me to get into that part? Yeah, the meaning, the stigma, the meaning that is associated with the tattoos that are being placed on the individual. You argue that those are that 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 part of it is very fluid, and how it uh, changes over time. Early on, this this mark of of a tattoo was used to identify people like criminals, deviants, and traitors, right? Uh, yes and no. And, and this is where it gets tricky. You could say early on it was used to mark those things, yes. But obviously there are cases, like I was mentioning in ancient Egypt, where it was for fertility purposes and primarily used to mark um, elites and priestesses. Or we can look at the Coptics, which is a, a type of Christianity. For them, getting tattooed with Coptic crosses was part of a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and dedication to their religious beliefs. So we can talk about deviance to some extent, but we can't leave out the fact that tattooing historically has also been associated with a number of pro-social, pro-community kinds of behaviors. Um, probably one of the contemporary groups that stands out the most is uh, Taumoko amongst the Maori, which are the elaborate facial tattoos. And these tattoos um, mark things in people's lives like 
their marriages, their family status, their jobs, their neighborhoods. Um, and in a sense, you can glean a lot of information off of somebody simply by looking at their face. Now, if we want to talk about deviance and tattooing, um, there is a history of tattoos being used to stigmatize and mark others as well. Um, but I, I just wanted to clarify as we got into this that we couldn't solely put it as deviance is the only history. I understand, yes. And, and um, it's necessary to understand the meanings of the tattoo because at the end of the day, what it is, is it's solidifying boundaries and separating people from one another to uh, uh, by using these markings on the on the human body, right? You're talking about priests and priestesses uh, to things that are sacred, right? To those things that are more deviant. And, and again, it's not a, a single history. It is it, it's diverse. It, it is. And this is where I'll, I'll get into some of the deviance of it, right? Um, it, it has been used for punitive purposes historically. Uh, we can go back to ancient Greece where tattoos, their primary purpose was for marking slaves and prisoners of war. Um, even captured uh, uh, people, uh, Xerxes, when he captured people at the Battle of Hellespont, had them tattooed to mark them as outsiders. Uh, if we look at the origins of the word stigmata, and some, some uh, linguistics scholars have done this as well as historians, they're fairly certain that it originates in the Greek word stizen, which actually uh, various transmissions of that Greek root word mean to prick, to sting, or to mark. Um, so they're fairly certain that even the word stigmata in Roman um, goes back to actually stigma or stizen in, in Greek, which was about tattooing. Uh, we can go other places, though, globally in Japan, pre-Edo Japan in particular, um, tattooing was used to, to mark criminals. It was considered a kind of disfigurement, and the state actually banned the practice. And as an interesting caveat in the Japanese context, it was this past fall, so fall of 2020, that the Supreme Court of Japan actually legalized artistic tattooing. Up until the fall of 2020 in Japan, you had to have a medical license to tattoo, and tattooers were operating in a sort of quasi-legal manner up until just a couple of months ago. Um, but it's not just Japan we can think of tattooing marking outsiders. Um, Russia obviously used it to mark criminals as well as military deserters. Uh, Probably what I think is one of the most uh, severe ways of, of using tattooing to mark outsiders was the Nazis who used it for bureaucratic record keeping in um, their extermination, concentration, and labor camps. Additionally, in the Western context, we have some contributing factors to tattooing's supposed deviance, and in particular, its association with criminality. Uh, Cesare Lombroso, who wrote about criminal minds and whatnot, and uh, a lot of his scholarship was trying to uncover um, atavism, what he viewed as a sort of biological throwback, a biologically, uh, 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 I don't want to say inferior person, because that's a different set of scholarship from another person, but it's essentially, um, it's it's an ethno-racial other that, that is biologically um, not with the rest of society, so to speak, or behind the rest of society. Um, Cesar Lombroso said tattooing was an evidence, or was evident... I got to repeat that. Cesare Lombroso said that tattooing was evidence of being an atavistic person. Um, and it's interesting that he makes that claim because in the second paragraph of one of his articles about tattooing in relation to atavism, he notes that he can't explain why there's a fad of tattooing amongst aristocratic 
British women at the same time period. That is, in the late 1800s, um, aristocratic women, in particular in Britain and the United States, experienced a fad of tattooing, and Lombroso simply ignores that evidence in front of him. However, being who he was and the contributions he had to criminology uh, really solidified some of that relationship between tattooing and criminality in the Western world. Uh, there are some other things that make tattooing deviant that are more particular to the United States context. Um, and I, I think there are two that, that are quite important. One is, is the influence of Christianity and in particular the Protestant ethic in the understanding of the world in the United States. We have to keep in mind that a, a lot of the Protestant ethic uh, prioritizes purity of the body. And it's very easy to define tattooing as a kind of impurity. And if we get into the context of, say, the 1950s in the United States, and we think about Nazis using this for record keeping, um, the influence of impurity, we've got multiple ways that we can conceive of tattooing as problematic. So on the one hand, we've got this Protestant ethic that shapes the sort of definitions of what's morally acceptable or unacceptable for bodies. And then there's this other influence that that is quite sort of, it's time-bound historically to the United States, and it deals with traveling carnivals. Traveling carnivals often had freak shows associated with them, and freak shows were collections of people who had various stigmas, abominations of the body. Um, often, one of the people in the freak show was a heavily tattooed person, um, and and the, typically they were women, some were men. Um, but these heavily tattooed people would often come up with narratives to explain how they became so tattooed. And the, the sort of general narrative is that somehow they ended up with some society of people that tattooed them. And this society of people, they, they, they were sick and they, they tortured this person into becoming tattooed. Um, I'll use the great Omi, even though he was British, the great Omi is an example of this. He his tale was about being um, kidnapped in New Guinea, and he was tortured and tattooed. And the narratives, all of these were completely false. No one was being kidnapped and tortured. But it did something interesting. It associated tattooing with a an other, and not just an other, an other that um, is, is uh, ethno-racially defined as an other. Um, moreover, you know, these people while they were tattooed and telling these stories, their tattoos take on more than just being um, a physical sort of stigma in the sense that they're an abomination of the body. They also become a blemish of character and that those telling the stories are now victims of these ethno-racial others. Um, and it says that they're really not normals and that normals don't tattoo like this. So I think there's a long history uh, of um, associating tattooing with deviance. And at the same time, we can't forget that there's a lot of pro-social normative behavior around tattooing as well. Yes, I, I, I start to get a sense of, of Goffman and this presentation of self uh, by these people who have, who are tattooed, but also the meaning that is associated and created, associated with the tattoo that was created by the tattooist and that's early years right we go into today and how how the tattoo artist even starts to embody these meanings when they are carrying out their everyday job yes i'm sorry i think i'm i miss was i'm not attaching that for some reason so the uh goffman-esque is the what i was thinking the goffman-esque sort of piece to this is the uh is the carnival talent that you were talking about earlier uh, with the tattooed people, or the uh, and how they play out these narratives that are associated uh, with their performance, their presentations. 
Yes, and they're doing so to an audience, right? And it's a particular narrative, and it it really does um, associate tattooing with deviance, but it reproduces that there's this other out there that's doing this practice, and and um, in a sense, it says that that um, this other is is um, a, a. a, a primitive, a savage. Uh, it's not advanced like the rest of society. I mean, and, and that's kind of the narrative that you're getting with this freak show thing that's going on. Um, so it's really interesting that that uh, how this is constructed and distributed to me. <laughs> yeah, it's not just happenstance, or it's not just uh, spontaneously appearing. It's a process, and that's something that stood out in your book. You, you several times you went back to how tattooing is a process. Yes, tattooing doesn't just exist. It's not like people walk into shops and walk out with tattoos uh, a half hour later. It takes a lot of time, and uh, it takes a lot of knowledge to become a tattooer. In fact, I, I think what we're talking about narratives here, and maybe this will be a, a theme of how we do this interview. Uh, many of us have narratives about how tattooers work. Obviously, there's a lot of accessibility right now through television and, and news media that diffuse meanings to us about what tattooers do. And the reality is there's a lot of behind the scenes work. And here we're getting back to Goffman. Uh, there's a lot of behind the scenes work that tattooers do on a daily basis that most of us don't see. Um, we don't see the, them uh, putting together machines or tuning them or cleaning them or uh, having conversations about which machines are best for which kinds of tattoos they're intending to design or if a machine produces a particular effect. I mean, these are conversations that that, um, tattooists have to learn or tattooists have to have in order to learn the craft. And when we're thinking about a job like tattooing and, and carrying out that labor, you don't go to tattoo school to become a tattooer. You have to apprentice. Um, and in general, there's not many opportunities to do that. And apprenticing is not like uh, uh, going to school, right? When we think about schools, we, we get degrees and we have all these credentials that back up our supposed skill. Well, tattooing is a world that operates quite differently from that. And it's based off of personal relationships and a sort of tradition of a mentor guiding a mentee through learning. This sort of tradition of a mentor guiding a mentee through learning how to produce a tattoo. Yeah, which which may be a great bridge to this typology that you created and, and how to become a tattooist. The uh, the legend of masters versus shopless and the scratchers. Oh, these this are, is oh go, oh, go sorry. Ahead. These are these are false boundaries that have been created and constructed, and and they're often more complex than you know these types that, that I just mentioned. But uh, but tattooing, it, there's a narrative in how one becomes a tattooist. Yes. And I'm going to caveat this with a a comment about what existed a little bit prior to to my work, and then it'll hopefully explain how I'm taking this in a new turn in a new direction. Um, But historically, and and in particular, there was an abundance of, or I shouldn't say abundance, but there was a a, a flurry of scholarship on tattooing uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And uh, much of it was about tattoo consumers. And often it divided tattooing into a binary of high art and low art. Um, Essentially, it argued there were artistic tattoo shops with tattooers producing artistic kinds of tattoos that uh, high-end consumers were consuming. And these were one-of-a-kind designs. And then there were what they called street shops where uh, people were taking flash designs um, and having them reproduced on bodies. And uh, flash designs, it's, it's a term within the world of tattooing, essentially 
tattooers have stock images on sheets of paper that they can easily trace and then um, transfer over to people's bodies and allows them to very efficiently produce a lot of tattoos without having to draw each design individually. And so traditional scholarship said there was this high art, low art kind of binary. And again, in getting into this project, and in particular spending a lot of time in tattoo shops, it didn't seem that way to me. And, and what I mean by that is um, the kinds of conversations that tattooists were having weren't solely around high art, low art binaries. Um, it seemed to be that, that, yes, while materialism might be part of the conversation, they are more concerned with various prestige hierarchies within the occupation and that there are sort of multiple prestige hierarchies uh, that create boundaries between members of the occupation. But people, when they talk about their work, um, also show how they're oriented to ways of doing things. And that's really where my typology came from, is that you had these legends and masters, craftsmen, artists, and then the bottom, you had these sort of shopless and scratchers. Now, the legends and masters, uh, they occupy the top of the tattoo worker or, or tattooist hierarchy. Um, they're, they're sort of the epitome of somebody who's mastered both the art and the craft of tattooing. But not only have they mastered the art and the craft, other people consider them to be masters, which is quite important because it's a social definition of saying that person deserves a lot of our attention. That person has mastered everything that they can to become this great tattooer. Um, where most tattooers lie, though, are in these sort of um, images, and obviously you're, you, the listeners can't see this, but they're essentially pyramids, and there's a small overlap in them um, of artists and craftsmen, and there's less people at the top than at the bottom, hence the pyramid structure. Now, craftsmen are identified really by how they orient themselves to their work and how they understand tattooing. Craftsmen... Um, value the sort of time-bound tr traditions of tattooing. Um, they value the way that things have always been done. For them, there's importance in uh, passing on traditions from mentor to mentee. And these sort of tattooists tend to work within the, the traditional ways of doing things, and they view it as a quite honorific accomplishment. Um, and, and as a caveat, uh, craftsmen tend to orient themselves also around producing the kinds of things that you need to tattoo. That is, they often begin to tinker with building tattoo machines or um, creating pigments and things like that or inks that they're going to use. They're very interested in the actual physical materials and how to improve the, that craft side of tattooing. Artists are a little bit different. Um, artists have their own hierarchy and their sort of um, system of prestige really values artistic freedom. Uh, many of them view tattooing as a kind of medium with which to explore. Um, in fact, many of the artists actually have uh, advanced degrees um, in fine arts, whether it's a BFA or an MFA. Um, so they have a lot of influence as well from, from the sort of university world and institutional art worlds. Um, but artists really value having creative freedom over their work. Um, they value being able to say that they have their own style and becoming known for their own style and aesthetic. And it's very different than, than sort of craftsmen. Artists also are willing to sort of violate some of those traditions that the craftsmen hold so deeply. Um, that is, artists are trying to push tattooing in new directions. And often that means violating some of the rules that those craftsmen really cherish that they say you're not supposed to violate. So there's um, 
I guess there's agreement between artists and craftsmen, but there's also a kind of tension, uh, which is really healthy and good for tattooing because it shows there's a sort of conversation and a discussion going on of, uh, what should and shouldn't be done, right? And and that kind of tension, I think it it, it really is the basis of, of democracy, and that they have to exchange ideas in order to to ensure the profession continues. And at the bottom of this hierarchy is this fourth group I call shopless, um, and and a part of the shopless are scratchers. Uh, generally, these are untrained tattooists. Um, they are often self-taught. They typically aren't working in shops. Um, they don't know the sort of code that tattooing uh, uh, um, values, so they, they don't understand the kind of rules of the game that other tattooers are playing by, but they are still trying to uh, uh, make a living at it or make some money off of it. Um, the, the shopless and scratchers, they really lack the honor that is associated with all the other types in this hierarchy. And of course, um, these part of the shopless are, are these scratchers. Um, and the scratchers are interesting because no one really claims to be a scratcher. And, and um, yet every tattooer you talk to has a lot of stories about scratchers. Um, not that a scratcher is a mythical kind of thing, but a scratcher is, is sort of a, a folk devil in the occupation. And tattooers pin all the evils of, of bad tattooing on the scratcher. And, and that can be a lot of characteristics, right? The scratcher could be somebody who's just has subpar work. It could be somebody who's smoking in the shop, somebody who doesn't shower, somebody who's drinking, somebody who's using drugs. And the list goes on and on of all these kind of um, characteristics that tattooers don't want associated with the occupation. They all get pinned on the scratcher, yet nobody ever claims to be that person. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, are there some external factors or external forces that are in play here that uh, I help identify or help place people within these categories uh, as what it means to be a tattooist uh, as an artist or a craftsman and whether it means to be that legend or that master or shopless and scratcher like magazines or media uh, segments of the public health and safety folklore and, and technological advancements or does any of that play a force in determining uh, who is a tattooist and who isn't or what type they are? Certainly. I mean, on, on the surface level, right, we, we can talk about media attention. And obviously, I said one of the characteristics of being a master or a legend is that others regard you um, as being a master or a legend. And part of garnering that support from others is garnering it not just from tattooers, but tattoo consumers. So if somebody is is reproduced a number of times in magazines and, and um those magazines note how great this person is, it increases their status to the point where they can take on that role of being known as a legend or master. So to some extent, there, there's that part of it. Um, but there's also another part that that we've seen rapid transitions and changes. Um, I got to rephrase that. Um, there's another part to it in that um, a lot of external forces have um, affected the way tattooing has uh, uh, I got to reword that. That's not the right way. I want to say that. <laughs> um, what we've also seen is that over the last 30 years, many of these external forces have had an effect on the profession of tattooing. And as a response to that, tattooers have had to um, really shore up the boundaries of the occupation and confront some of these questions of what's our future direction. Part of this, I think the magazine industry, we're already on this subject. Um, 
and and we've, we've touched on some of these ideas already, but um, as people realized tattooing could be profitable in the 90s and 2000s, um, all sorts of magazines started popping up. Now, prior to this time period, tattoo magazines could easily be divided into high art and low art, a sort of binary based off of social class. But what we saw was the sort of proliferation of magazines targeted at particular groups of potential tattoo consumers. That is, there was a a tattoo magazine for men, a tattoo magazine for women, a tattoo magazine for bikers, a tattoo magazine for for punk rock kids, a tattoo magazine for people that were into trendy hip art scenes. Essentially, uh, they saw and recognized consumerism around tattooing and the interest in it. And um, these magazines were geared toward tattoo consumers, not necessarily tattooists. Uh, I I mentioned the the sort of trendy hip tattoo magazine. Um, These magazines featured advertisements for things like popular liquor brands and car sales. Um, Traditionally, tattoo magazines didn't have ads like that in them. and, and we're going back now now 25 or 30 years, they were literally just pictures of tattoos. And then occasionally you'd see the business cards of some tattooers or some supply companies in the back of, of the magazine funding it. Um, now we've got these high gloss, uh, uh, wonderful magazines to some extent with, with their reproduction of images and tattooing, uh, but they're not geared toward tattooers. And so tattooers have, have really been trying to retain some of the control over their occupation. And they've largely responded with creating their own kinds of media that reinforce what is tattooing and what isn't. So there's sort of a reciprocal relationship between the two, right? Uh, so the consumer providing knowledge for the tattooer to use in their uh, in their effort to do the job, their everyday job, while what the tattooer does reinforces what the what the consumer sees as as natural or normal for the tattoo industry certainly certainly um but i think for tattooers though the the question they're confronting is uh, are we losing control over some of this right as more imagers get out as more people see this how do we confront them coming into the shop and saying well i want this to happen um and then it's very unrealistic for what the tattooer skills and knowledge are um and since we're on this maybe i should bring in television and and the real effects of that on the occupation um now that we can see people on television getting tattoos uh it really changed the game for tattooers and that more people were coming into shops curious about it and magazines and television expanding around it are good because it means more people can see tattooing But they're also bad to some extent because it means tattooers now have new problems to grapple with. Um, Often this means more people poking around shops. And and that also means more people poking around shops who aren't interested in getting tattooed but want to talk about tattoos. So they've got all sorts of things to now manage that they didn't have 30 or 40 years ago or they didn't have as much of it. Um, And I think televisions are are, – I think television shows on tattooing – or one of those things that, as I talk to tattooers, it really frustrates them because they're happy more people are interested, but that also means they now have to have conversations with people who have unrealistic expectations of the tattoo process. And many of these shows obviously operate on the half hour or the one hour format, um, but that's not how tattooing operates. Um, you don't just walk into a shop and a half hour later, you walk out with a massive tattoo. Uh, and, and so they're spending a lot more of their labor trying to um, teach potential clients about how they're going to do this rather than just doing what they want to do, which is tattoo. Yes. And that emotional labor uh, may take us to this next question. The emotional labor that is uh, that is required of the tattooer today can take a toll on their uh, – 
on their experience in the workplace, let's put it that way. So does it result in some of these tattooers taking temporary breaks from their profession? Oh, certainly. People do take temporary breaks, sometimes just for a couple days. Um, probably the, the thing that affects tattooers the most is the physical breakdown of their bodies. Um, and in interview after interview, as I spoke to people, they said at some point, you know, my hands cramped up, my back you know, it locked up and I couldn't move the same way. My neck got stiff, my eyes, I have to wear glasses now. I mean, these are the effects of the actual job. And you think about holding a tattoo machine, I mean, it's vibrating and it's heavy and it's metal and it's in your hand. And over years, that's going to hurt your wrist and your fingers and you're going to develop some symptoms related to that. So in a sense, that's one of the big things that happens to tattooers. Um, Other things is they do face burnout. Um, Some, uh, would leave for, for a few days, some would leave for a few months um, just to explore other kinds of art or, or other kinds of producing culture. And I, it's kind of amazing that, that tattooing facilitates this to some extent too. Um, there are other tattooers I interviewed that played in bands. And so when they were not on tour, they would tattoo. And well, when they were on tour, they could just leave their tattoo job and go on tour and then come back home and start tattooing again. Um, so there are all sorts of reasons people move in and out of this job, but it, it's a common experience for sure. Were any of the tattooists able to completely exit, roll exit, and uh, leave the tattoo industry uh, forever, maybe retire out of the industry? Yes, I'm going to say yes and no, but it's not quite borne out in the data. There's a big caveat to this. Um Really, the only things we know about people moving away from tattooing come from legends and masters. That is, the the um, people that are well-known, the people that are most likely to already have media about them. Um, I'm certain some leave. Um, some probably stay in the occupation till they die. Uh, but we don't have any other good information besides those legends and masters. Okay. So now the, the die, the burning question, we continue to talk through this and we use the words words like art and craft what's the difference between art and craft and uh are tattooists artists or are they craftsmen um they're both they really are both i don't think we can separate tattoo to solely art or solely craft um and what i mean by that is even the most artistic tattoo has elements of craft in it um and i I should probably take a a step back here and, and say that one of the the major influences in developing this book uh, has been Becker's art world. So I I sought to explore sort of tattooing as as a kind of collective process, that these weren't individuals, um, and it really required the work of groups. So while I'm talking about an artistic tattoo having craft in it, even the most artistic tattoo, and we can do this as a thought experiment, will have elements of craft, right? This requires somebody knowing how to um, run lines, what the effects of pigments will be on the skin, and different skin types. And when we talk about skin types, tattooers will tell you a lot about how age, the color of the skin, the thickness of the skin, the amount of wrinkles, if somebody's been tanning a lot or not, if it's stretched, if it's hard, how all those variables affect the way pigments will go into skin and how they'll appear. Um, there's also a craft in knowing how to manipulate the machine to produce the desired effect, how to transfer to the, des- the design onto the skin. And there's far more elements of this than what I'm just mentioning here. Um, I- I'm saying this list could go on for, for several minutes. Um, the point I'm trying to get at is that even the person producing the most artistic tattoo is reliant upon a stock knowledge of craft. Moreover, they're going to need some tools to produce that tattoo. Now, where did those tools come from? 
largely tattooers value handmade machines made by craftsmen. Um, so they had to know a craftsman. And it's not like you can just go buy a tattoo machine. I mean, you can, um, and, and uh, I'll say this, you can go buy one online at Walmart right now for $20 probably, but it's not exactly going to produce the effects of a handcrafted tattoo machine of somebody who spent years in the occupation learning how to make machines and improve them and tweak them to, to make them do what they want them to do. Uh, so in essence, it's, it's a quality issue here that tattooers value. Um, but what I'm getting at is a craftsman had to build that tool for that artist to use. So craft is bound up in the artistic production of a tattoo. At the same time, even in the craft of tattooing, there's an art to it. Um, we can think of the machine builder again, who's building a one-of-a-kind machine. While that might be its own piece of craft, they might do artistic things to it, like engrave designs in it, or dip it in oil and paint it in ways in which they're borrowing from art techniques. We mentioned Flash earlier in this podcast as a kind of set of images that, that could be reproduced easily on bodies. Much of the, the Flash, especially in the traditional American style, was inspired by uh, previous tattooers, and some of them had attachments to art schools um, and even took college classes in art in order to improve their tattooing as well as their painting abilities. So in a sense, even those elements of craft that are used in tattooing have their roots in art. Um, and uh, to get back to Becker here, um, art and craft, right? There, there's social agreements or definitions that members of the tattoo world create. Um, this book is is really about how people uh, create their world and how they sustain it, um, how they find stability over time, and how they negotiate change. Um, in other words, people aren't working in isolation within this world. Um, they're reliant upon many other tattooers in order to uh, figure out the job and then continue the job. Yeah, I remember you uh, wrote early on that the apprentices were once used to uh, create, uh, used to create, to build, to make the needles for the uh, for the tattooers. That was sort of a, a, a disposable labor that they. But a very part, a very important part uh, of the apprentice process, in order to understand the tools that they would one day be working with. Yeah, I mean, building needles is largely a, a dying craft at this point, um, in the sense that um, people can now buy uh, machine-produced needles relatively inexpensively, and they're already pre-sterilized. But at some point, people had to make these needles by hand, and that meant sitting there with a soldering iron and flux and um, putting essentially needle points onto a needle bar and a tattoo needle isn't just one needle it's multiple needles and they'd have to arrange them in either flats or rounds of a set number of needle points to get the desired effect well it takes time to make a needle five maybe ten minutes um, and for an apprentice that's new it might take even longer figuring out how to do all this and you have a little needle jig which is a, a little like acrylic plastic thing that uh, has your alignments of needles that you can put the needles in in the bar and solder it together um Somebody had to learn that and produce that, and a tattooer having an apprentice around to do that is a useful thing, especially since tattooers can use multiple needles in the production of a tattoo. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a kind of disposable labor, but it was a necessary part of the craft, and it's not just making needles that needs to be done. There's more work that needs to be done in a tattoo shop than any one individual can do on a single day. 
yeah, we could even go into talking about the ink, right, and the significance of the different types of ink and whether or not it sets in the skin right or uh, or whether it tends to bleed off. So there's that craftsmanship there. And then the uh, customer service component that the uh, that the apprentices often did at the front of the front of the shop in order to relieve the tattooers from uh, less serious co- uh, consumers. I mean, yeah. The ink is amazing to me because it's not necessarily federally regulated. The FDA does does say something about cosmetics being regulated, but tattooers have largely taken it upon themselves to explore inks and what would stay in the skin and what wouldn't and what kinds of things are harmful and what's not harmful. And they do rate, and, and they don't have an official rating system, but tattooers do try and figure out um, which inks are better for which kinds of effects, uh, what might last in the skin longer than others. Um, and it, here's a perfect example from the history of tattooing. For years, people tried to uncover a purple pigment that would stay in the skin that would last. Um, and only recently have they discovered that. Uh, but this is largely tattooers' curiosity. Um, another one that, that happened for a while, um, some tattooers were producing a red ink out of... Um, pigment derived from shellfish. Well, you can imagine the effects of, of that on somebody who has a shellfish allergy. Um, now they have a tattoo that's red that, that um, they're going to have an allergic reaction to. Uh, but you mentioned also the front of the shop and producing tattoos. Um, in some shops, it's just uh, much more efficient for tattooers to avoid uh, some of the interactions with clients, especially since so many people are going to show up there asking questions that might not have the intent of getting tattooed that day or month or even that year. Um, so they have counter help and apprentices to do those kinds of conversations to meet out who's actually serious about getting tattooed and who's not. And often in some of these shops, the, the counter help will be the ones um, selecting the flash and doing the tracings or um, at least doing the initial design. And then the tattooer makes tweaks to it before they apply it to the customer customer. Uh, Again, though, it's a collective process. It's not individuals. And importantly, though, these apprentices or counter help, they serve as gatekeepers of who's actually going to get tattooed. Um, They're trying to have those kinds of conversations where they figure out somebody's actual intent. Um, And you could imagine the amount of time a tattooer might waste on a daily basis if they're having conversations with people who aren't going to get tattooed anytime soon. And then you mentioned flash art, and I couldn't help but think, and maybe you, you didn't intend to go this direction in your book, but I couldn't help but think of flash art as being a McDonaldization of tattooing. Uh, not all of the tattooers wanted to necessarily use the flash art. Am I correct in saying that, or or how does this flash art work? Um, okay, that there's a whole other system of ranking flash here. Um, there are... <laughs> Boy, this is a little, <laughs> there are certain kinds of flash that tattooers know from certain producers that are money makers that have reproduced them for years. Certain sets of images, they know that year in and year out, they're going to reproduce them. Um, yes, those matter. There are also kinds of flash designed by particular people that are important. Um, uh, I, I obviously have um, a, a lot of influence. In fact, I end the book with some folklore about Mike Malone, the tattooer. Um he was a very influential designer of Flash. His Flash is is rated as quite important um, because of who he was in the world of tattooing. He's somebody who definitely mastered the craft side and is definitely was a legend by the time he passed. Um, 
But again, that's valued flash. Uh, there is some flash that's not valued. That's just viewed as generic. Uh, reproduction's almost McDonaldized. Uh, but, but this is kind of the art world sorting themselves out. There's a prestige tied to certain kinds of flash, certain kinds of producers, as well as known sets of flash that people are going to reproduce year in and year out. Yeah, thanks for that. It was a little extra. It wasn't necessarily uh, well. You're focused on in your book by any means, but 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 I had this burning sensation of like McDonaldization of flash art and and Ritzer. It was like an epiphany or something that that just popped into my head. So there there is some of that. There is, but there's also the caveat of we're working within an art world where people assign definitions to what is worthy of being valued. And the negotiation that takes place to determine what is valued and what isn't. Hence and, why yeah. why Mike Malone is important, right? He he yeah. was one of the sort of – I'm not going to give that story at the end of the book, but I'll, I'll say the short version. We probably wouldn't be having this conversation about tattooing if it wasn't for what he did decades ago to tattooing. Um, but again, he has that sort of status that it matters in that art world. <laughs> This could be a plug of saying, go out, buy the book, read the full story. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'm all out of questions. We made it through the book. We made it all the way to that final story at the back. Uh, so, yeah, where are you taking your work now? What is What are you working on now, Dave? Uh, I've got my hands in a few different pots. Uh, the big one I'm working on right now is I'm currently gathering interviews uh, of people who have tattoos in relation to traumatic experiences in their lives. Um, this is sort of a big project I've got going on. Uh, if anyone's interested, uh, if you potentially want to be a participant in the study, please check it out. The website is tattoostudyisu.com. Um, I'm sure it'll be linked in the, the bio to this. Uh, the other projects I'm working on, I have a, a, a substantial interest in the relationship between crime, in particular frauds, and natural hazards and disasters, uh, how they open up windows of opportunities to commit criminal activities. Additionally, I, I've got a little bit of work on applying constructionism to disasters and responses to disasters. And finally, I have another project in which I'm analyzing uh, how tattooists advertise their services um, and how they try to mm, promote their their work to audiences excellent well i look forward to your next book that comes out and uh having you back on the show to discuss this further uh, uh this is a, this was a fantastic book it was an excellent conversation to learn more about tattoo uh tattooers and what they do uh it's something that uh often happens behind the scenes right uh it's often something that even that is even covered up by by clothing but you know that's a whole other area to to go into about uh, uh about what tattoos mean and how they should be presented in society but uh it, it's great to be able to talk about those things that are often uh covered deep in the ground are you hinting out we should do part two? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks. yeah, thank you, thank you, Dave, for for joining me on the show today, and it's it's been an excellent conversation. Thanks for having me. This is wonderful, and and you know I really appreciate this, and and I'm super excited to finally get hear this later on. You know, this is awesome. <laughs> excellent. Uh, this has been an episode of New Books in Sociology. Today I had Dr. David C. Lane on the show. And again, thank you, David, for uh, joining me today. Thanks for having me.